Hi, I'm Evacheska DeAngelis, and I am here to welcome you to our internet radio broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Mind, Body, Health, and Politics brings you wide-ranging, uncensored conversations containing up-to-date information with prominent, nationally acclaimed authorities, scientists, and best-selling authors. We feature a wide variety of topics ranging from psychedelic science, expanding consciousness, mental and physical health, human sexuality, the environment, social justice, and much more. This program has been hosted by my father, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, for 20 years, and we continue to broadcast because you listen. So please give us your support by subscribing free of charge at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and joining our growing community. And now, here's my dad and today's guest. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. And I say encourage community because I believe that people live most healthily and effectively when we live in community. I believe that we are basically friendly tribal animals and that when we hang out and live together in small enough groups where we know each other by name or at least by face, we love collaborating, we love cooperating, and we really love doing things together, whether it's sewing circles or poker games, whether it's flying to the moon or whether it's playing games together, or poker, or watching things on television as small groups. We're basically tribal animals, and we really are good to each other. However, we must always remember that there is a very small percentage of us who are extremely different. These folks are predators, and they would dominate the rest of us if they are allowed to. These are the folks when we came out of the caves who had the biggest club so they could dominate the rest of the people in the little caves around them. These are the people as the caves became small towns and eventually became cities who did everything they could to control those around them. These are the people who eventually when these cities became countries and now countries are becoming like the European Union and pulling together these, there are people amongst these people who would rather have us be subjects than citizens. And they had their way. They had their way for over 1,700 years since the fall of the Roman Empire, when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon and he entered and ended, he ended the experiment that they had with a republic and created an empire. That was the last time we had a democracy and a republic or an experiment with it until our glorious revolution, when we overthrew not just the king of England, but we overthrew the church. Because remember, when countries established kings who had subjects, the kings made a deal with the church so that they ruled by divine right. That meant if you did something against the king, you also did something against the God and the church, and most often off went your head. But we changed that in our revolution. We created our present experiment with democracy, one person, one vote, and republic, all of us equal before the law. And that experiment is still going on. It's a fragile experiment. I believe growing up that I would live in a democracy and a republic forever, that it was set in stone. But I was wrong. 
It's not set in stone. It's something we must protect. So I implore you to stay politically aware and protect our democracy and protect our republic. Even though it may be difficult in these times to stay politically aware, because I am very deeply aware that 70% of us here in the United States are living paycheck to paycheck. We're dealing with food on the table and paying our rent and heating our homes. I'm aware of that. But even when doing that, we must stay politically aware if we're going to maintain our political system of democracy and republic and maintain ourselves as citizens and not subjects. In the words of one of my great heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the privilege of being with my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Nick Cozy. Dr. Nick Cozy is with the University of Wisconsin Medical School, and he is also a co-founder of the Alexander Shulgin Research Institute, which is doing great work in researching new psychedelic molecules. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Nick. Thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me to be with you. Nick, in addition to friends and family, what's on your radar screen nowadays? What takes up your interest? Well, that's a broad question. The last week or so, I've been focused on morel mushrooms. Where I am in Wisconsin, it's morel season uh, in early May, usually the second to third week in May. They, they only come up for a brief period of time. And I was fortunate the other day, I was visiting a friend and uh, started uh, walking around his property uh, with him and his wife. I found about a dozen morels. I was just so thrilled. These are my favorite mushroom to eat uh, as a a, a compliment to a a dinner, for example. Last year, I found none. So I I considered myself very, very fortunate. So that's what's been on my mind the last few days anyway, is morel mushrooms. And give us an update. What's happening at the Alexandra Shulgren Research Institute? Oh, sure. I'd love to. I just, just for the record, though, I want you to know that I retired from teaching at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and, and Public Health. So in your introduction, I just wanted your listeners to know that, that I'm, I occasionally give a guest lecture to, but I'm not actively involved in teaching there anymore. And most of my efforts are indeed spent at the Alexander Shulgin Research Institute. Well, I'd say the latest developments are that we've identified two novel compounds that we are uh, presently are presently going through late stage preclinical testing. So this is before they're put into human beings. We're doing some some animal toxicity work as well as characterizing their effects in vitro, and we hope to have completed those studies by fall of 2023. And in fact, the molecules should be ready for submission to the FDA for investigational new drug status. Uh, so this would this is all the kind of work that needs to be done before the FDA will approve a, a human trial. And can you tell us something about the molecules? Do you have some information on their effect that you could share with us at this early stage? 
Well, yeah, a little bit. Uh, we we've we think we've identified uh, a molecule that is kind of the holy grail among some of the folks that are uh, in this space these days, and that is creating a molecule which produces a psychedelic cognitive state, but with uh, reduced or absent sensory changes. Uh, so, in other words, uh, the visual and auditory. Uh, changes that are often seen with psychedelic substances such as LSD or DMT, psilocybin, uh, seem to be absent in our in our lead candidate. Uh, but yet, there is still uh, the production of a of a cognitive state which can only be described as psychedelic. That is, you know, ability to see patterns in things. I mean, and I don't mean patterns like visual patterns, but patterns in uh, in connectivity among different ideas. And and so we, we think there might be some interest in this in the psychotherapeutic community where we've heard some uh, clinicians uh, say that they, you know, if we could create a molecule without the so-called distraction, if you will, of the visual changes, like, you know, the floors melting and, you know, the walls moving, that that might be of benefit uh, in a therapeutic setting because the, the patient would be able to concentrate more on the cognitive and emotional aspects without without being distracted by the sensory changes. Does that, make, yes. I don't know if that make sense? does that make sense? Well, it does make sense because what we've had to do for psychotherapy is use low-dose uh, psychedelics in order to do what's called psycholytic therapy. We, differ we, we differentiate psycholytic from psychedelic. psychedelic psycholytic being low-dose where the therapist and the patient can converse with one another, and psychedelic, where the patient pretty much wears blindfolds and does an introspective journey and stays inside and does very little conversing with the other person. So it sounds like you're onto something that might be more what we might call conversational and allow for psychotherapy in the session. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. Uh, exactly. Uh, this allows for communication uh among individuals or between a therapist and patient. And uh, there's no need for, you know, eye shades or, you know, headphones or anything like that. Uh, so we, we don't know yet. I, again, we're very early in the process. Uh, at this point, the, these reports are anecdotal, uh, but we hope to, uh, uh, you know, see if they are of use in the clinic once we uh, get past that FDA uh, approval stage. Nick? Alexander Shulgren, wh whom you named your institute after, was famous for taking the molecules that he was experimenting with. Are you uh, allowed to allow others to sample what you're experimenting with while you're experimenting to do sort of uh, informal, shall we say, human subjects? Or are you not allowed to allow people to uh, do that on their own? What what are the rules and, and, and guidelines regarding that? Yeah, you you raise a, a great point, and uh, you're exactly right. Uh, so Sasha Shulgin uh, self-experimented, and uh, there was uh, you know a tradition of this actually in in, in pharmacology and in medicine, uh, and there are numerous examples in the literature uh, of people who 
experimented on themselves to achieve a breakthrough. Uh, I mean, there's a couple examples. The discovery of aspartame as a sweetener uh, came about by somebody tasting uh, some crystals that were on, on the lab bench, or the discovery that uh, Helicobacter pylori caused stomach ulcers, uh, which led to the Nobel Prize, actually, uh, was done through self-experiments where the researchers actually infected themselves with uh, H. pylori and then cured it with antibiotics. So, you know, we no longer uh, think that, uh, you know, to cure an ulcer, you need to get a job as a, as a mattress tester, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, to get rid of the stress. But we, we know that. It, so there are numerous examples that have led to changes in, in, in therapy. But so to your specific question, uh, it's not, I don't think, a matter of being allowed to. I mean, there's no law that says uh, you know, you can't self-experiment. And the substances that we're working with are not controlled substances. They're, they're brand new uh, uh, forms of matter that we're creating in the laboratory. So there's no, uh, you know, precedent for these molecules. I think that it's, it's more of the, well, there's significant probably pushback from the scientific community and being you know, impartial and unbiased, and 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 you can't do, you can't be that. At least according to the 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 paradigm, you can't do that if you're if you're testing on yourself. Now, I will say that at least in Germany, it's uh, and I don't know about the rest of Europe, but uh, uh, one of uh, our colleagues, and you know, Dr. Torsten Passy uh, in in Germany, uh, uh, has informed me that. Uh, it's possible to test novel substances uh, in human beings as part of a research uh, plan uh, without necessarily having, uh, you know, an investigational new drug application in or uh, that kind of thing. It can be done. It can be do- done in a in a, a therapist or a researcher's clinic. So it's kind of you know I don't have a specific answer to that. When you ask me, is is it allowed? It's uh, it just. I was- a- you know what I, I was mean? go ahead I'm I was sorry. I was I wasn't asking so much whether you as the researcher would be doing it because I understand that then you could be seen as having a bias I was wondering whether like people were could people volunteer themselves uh, as informal subjects just to give you some sense of early on of what this particular molecule does to people because otherwise you're sort of going ahead with on based on what kind of information? Well, exactly, and we and we think that that's what uh, the advantage that uh, Sasha Shulgin uh, had is that he was willing to do that to test on himself. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you're relying on uh, unreliable uh, models. You're 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 uh, relying on in vitro data, which may or may not be predictive. You're relying on animal data, which may or may not be predictive. Uh, I mean, we know, and not even in the field of psychedelics, but just in uh, drug development in general, uh, something like 90% of all uh, potential drugs fail uh, to ever be available because they, they fail uh, when it, when they're brought into humans. They, they fail for some uh, lack of efficacy or... Uh, uh, you know, earlier, maybe even earlier in the process. But in other words, what I'm trying to say is that if the in vitro and the animal models were 
reliable. There, there'd be no need for human testing. You could just do it, do this all in vitro and then, and then approve a drug. But, but uh, ultimately, uh, the, the, the final arbiter, if you will, is, is the human response. Yeah. You see my Nick, cat has joined us. Well, okay, great. I'd love to see the cat. I'd like to switch topics now. We're going through what's being called a psychedelic renaissance. In effect, what that means is the government is allowing more research. More and more people are coming into the field. And we've got a plethora of people who are serving as guides, who are uh, leading people on psychedelic journeys, both around the United States and around the world. We're all aware of that. At the same time, while this enthusiasm is going on, one topic that really is not getting a lot of attention, which I am now focusing on, are unwanted complications of these medicines. And part of the reason I'm focusing on them is I want to get ahead of the criticisms that are li liable to be coming at us when there are adverse effects or unwanted complications that are made known. And also, the pharmaceutical companies, which we refer to as Big Pharma, are famous for sanitizing their negative effects or even hiding them. And we know that. And that's very frightening to the public because when the pharmaceuticals companies do that, of course, it leaves the public to be subjects in a great experiment with these medicines that, that uh, hit the stands. And so I think it's incumbent upon us in the psychedelic science community to do just the opposite of big pharma and to make ourselves completely transparent and talk about all the unwanted complications and then also make proposals for what kind of activity should go on in order to deal with the unwanted complications. So with that introduction, you've been a psychopharmacologist for decades. What can you tell us about unwanted complications of each of the various psychedelic medicines? Yeah, a great topic. And as you say, uh, understudied perhaps, uh, especially in the current climate. As you say, there's lots of enthusiasm for the benefits of uh, psychedelic compounds, but uh, I, uh, perhaps a little bit more attention should be paid on their, uh, to, their, to their adverse effects. Now, I, the only thing I can say is that the kind of classic psychedelics such as LSD, DMT, mescaline, psilocybin, uh, really don't have any physiological adverse effects to speak of. Most of the risk, I believe, comes from the psychological effects. And so I can't really speak to that very much because I'm not a psychotherapist or a, a psychologist. I just can speak from my reading the literature that, you know, people are screened uh, before the test to ensure that they have no kind of underlying psychopathologies, uh, et cetera. It's known that these substances can, you know, trigger uh, uh, difficult states in people who are, uh, have, you know, perhaps suppressed trauma or, or, or whatever. I, I think my, uh, I'm more confident in speaking about the adverse physiological effects for some compounds. So again, the, the classic psychedelics are pretty safe, if you will, in that regard. The, the, the exception is really MDMA, which uh, is really an empathogen. It's, it's 
not a, a frank psychedelic per se, although some people include that in that category. And there have been some difficulties with MDMA, and it's mostly due to the way it's metabolized. Uh, so there are certain enzymes in the liver that uh, metabolize MDMA, and that one of the main enzymes is the one that's most genetically variable in humans. And so there are people, uh, a significant uh, percentage of the population, uh, perhaps even up to 20%, who carry uh, a variant in one of the main enzymes who won't metabolize MDMA as rapidly uh, as, uh, as another person. And it's possible that one could reach dangerous levels in the body uh, from even just what would be considered a standard dose of MDMA. What, well, what would happen? Well, uh, the things that could happen are, that in, in big case, what's called serotonin syndrome, uh, which is uh, an over uh, overactivity of the serotonergic system. This can lead to everything from tremors to frank uh, myoclonus, hyperthermia, uh, GI instability, and in an extreme case, even death. There are a couple of uh, examples in the literature where uh, people who had a deficiency in this enzyme died from taking, which might be a somewhat of a high dose, but but not you know like maybe 180 milligrams of MDMA. I, I don't remember the exact number, but it was you know, it was a high dose, but it wasn't. It, it was within the range of what people might take. Uh, uh, you know, recreationally. So I, I just would point that out with MDMA. And a, another feature of MDMA is it tends to activate the sympathetic nervous system. So it's a, what would be called a sympathomimetic drug. It essentially can activate the, uh, uh, in a way, the fight or flight response. So increased heart rate, increased blood pressure. It can produce elevated temperature, hyperthermia. This can be dangerous. And so, uh, and that's not specific to MDMA. Other drugs in the category, such as MDA, uh, methylone, or even amphetamines can produce this sympathomimetic effect. And so there's reason to have caution there. Persons who have like uncontrolled high blood pressure, who have uh, cardiac arrhythmias, uh, these persons should probably avoid, or if, if they're going to, be using MDMA in a therapeutic setting. Their their uh, their their clinicians should be aware of these potential adverse effects and uh, at least monitor them uh, at at a minimum. Are there are there medicines that a person? I mean, you're talking about take a break. Uh, you're talking about possibly twenty percent of the population could have some form of unwanted complication from MDMA. That's a very high number. And when you're talking about cardiovascular effects, I mean, the, the increase in blood pressure and the increase in heart rate are pretty well documented. Uh, I think arrhythmia is also being talked about in the literature. Are there medicines that a person can take if they get an arrhythmia by taking uh, MDMA? Or should they be taking much lower doses? Would, would a lower dose decrease the possibility of an arrhythmia? Yeah, there, there are so, so I, I can be a little bit more specific. Uh, the, uh, with the, uh, 
with this this mutation in this enzyme, first let me address the percentage of pop of people that have that. Uh, it depends on their ethnicity. So I can state that uh, people of uh, with Asian uh, ethnicity, uh, up to perhaps three percent of those will be poor metabolizers of MDMA. Uh, 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 African Americans, on the other hand, it could be up to thirty-five percent. So perhaps one in three uh, black uh, 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 black Africans or black uh, Americans uh, can have this variant. And in Caucasians, it's, it's about two percent. So you have a range. I, I, I use twenty percent as kind of a of an average across the population, but it does uh, depend on uh, ethnicity. And I would say that the treatments, so that in the extreme case is going to be this thing I, I mentioned, serotonin syndrome. And the there are certain uh, treatments for that. So generally, uh, what kind of treatment is to maintain uh, the person's body temperature in a kind of normal range. And so cooling blankets are used or sometimes a cooling mist or person who's hyperthermic. And then there are drugs. Uh, the one that is commonly used or, or kind of the go-to is called cyproheptadine. Uh, this is a drug that essentially uh, is kind of a broad spectrum serotonin receptor blocker. So it will it will reduce the effects of the excess serotonin stimulation uh, at, at the various receptors. And yeah, just cooling. And and the one thing, uh, the caveat with the with the cooling is that because the hyperthermia is due to this myoclonus, it, it, it's not it's not a, a fever per se. So uh, antipyretic drugs are are of no use. So drugs like acetaminophen or even aspirin are of no use. Uh, it but drugs that block. Uh, Neuromuscular contractions. Uh, I'm thinking dantrolene, uh, drugs that that inhibit uh, spasm, uh, some sort of neuromuscular junction blocker. These like, uh, are, are like drugs. clonopin. Yeah, right. So, so these these are these would be useful therapies for that. And this this is the reason what you're talking now about the hypothermia. This is the reason that people are cautioned about taking MDMA and staying in a hot tub or taking MDMA and dancing in a hot room for hours because of the increased temperature, correct? Yes, right, exactly. Well, that's good to know. It's also good to know that there is an ethnicity differential and that uh, the 2% relates to Caucasians and that people of, uh, of color, of African descent uh, particularly, uh, have a, a one in three chance of of uh, of having this kind of difficulty that's important for them to know and it's important for therapists to know as well i would just also add here uh uh dr miller uh there's also a role for uh so typically in the serotonin syndrome uh people have become very agitated as well so there is a role for benzodiazepines so drugs such as uh you know valium or uh you know, a Xanax, those type of things can help control agitation. And uh, there is also a role for uh, kind of short-acting uh, beta blockers and vasodilators. So b these are 
have to be administered intravenously, but th this is what happens in the, so the people that are under severe uh, serotonin syndrome are actually admitted to the uh, emergency department and treated there. But things like sodium nitroprusside, which is uh, a vasodilator, this will uh, uh, control the hypertension. And then there's a beta blocker, uh, esmolol, uh, that's also uh, used to control the tachycardia that can be seen. So uh, I just wanted to add those other ones. It's not, it's not just the, uh, the uh, neuromuscular junction blocker uh, or the cyproheptadine. There's a, there's a role for about uh, you know, three or four different drugs. Yes, and George Greer yesterday mentioned to me a tenolol in dropping the uh, the the blood pressure, and uh, he told he told me something very interesting that I want to share with you, Nick. He told me that people who have had um, panic attacks are more likely after MDMA to have increased anxiety. And that's an important thing for us therapists to know. I know your field is psychopharmacology, but I wanted to you know, just share that. I think it's an important piece of information for all of us to know uh, in terms of screening people and being prepared for what they might bring to the table on psychedelic experiences. So that's MDMA. What about side effects or unwanted complications? I got to get away from that word side effects because they do not happen on the side they happen to the whole person, and I want to really switch to unwanted complications or adverse effects. Other psychedelics, what can you share with us? Well, uh, can I just make what, just one more comment on Please. Uh, MDMA before we get to that? Sure. So, uh, we've been speaking about the effects of MDMA itself, potential adverse effects, uh, but there are also... Uh, uh, some drug-drug interactions that can occur uh, with MDMA that I just want to mention for your listeners. Uh, the, the first is drugs that increase the uh, sympathetic nervous system activity. Uh, so these are drugs like monoamine oxidase inhibitors, they're called. Uh, they're found in, uh, well, for example, ayahuasca is an example uh, or, or they're they're prescribed to, uh, to treat depression, but these can give a an, a greater than anticipated effect to MDMA due to interfering with its metabolism through an, another route, not because of a defective enzyme, but because another drug is blocking the metabolism. And then there's another. There are certain uh, anti-HIV drugs. Uh, the classic example is called ritonavir. It's used. Uh, it's it, it's uh, used to treat uh, HIV infections, but it it actually blocks the same enzyme uh, that I was talking about earlier in the liver. Uh, so if you have a genetic mutation, you make a defective enzyme. That's one way to get greater than expected effects. But also, even if you have a normal enzyme, but you take a drug like ritonavir that blocks the enzyme, functionally you're in the same state as somebody who has a defective enzyme you've knocked out its activity. And so uh, there are examples of people on these uh, uh, protease inhibitors, they are uh, ritonavir it, it is a protease inhibitor uh, that should avoid uh, taking MDMA. So I wanted to just mention these other, these drug-drug interactions, which are really distinct from the uh, direct effects of MDMA and serotonin. It, the, the MAO inhibitors they will then, if you're taking one and you take MDMA, you're saying it will potentiate the effect of the MDMA? That's right, yeah. And so, therefore, you might be more likely to have even 
more increased blood pressure, higher heart rate, possibly tachycardia, or might that's be right. more likely to create an AFib. Yes, right. That's that sounds very important for therapists around the country to know because there are there are millions of people taking MAO uh, inhibitors. Yeah, that's right. There are some newer ones uh, that are so the the. The, the ones that are commonly used are uh, have a persistent effect even after the drug clears the body. They, they essentially take out the enzyme and the, the cells have to make new enzyme. But there's a, a meclobamide is one. I don't think it's available in the United States, but I believe it's available in Canada. So people may have access to it, which is a reversible uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And that one is supposed to be safer, but I'm not here to offer any kind of advice in that regard. Understood. So uh, if you want to switch to, uh, so the other psychedelics, uh, you know, again, the physiological effects of a drug like LSD are are, are really benign. I mean, it doesn't raise blood pressure, you know, it has no direct effects on it or produce... you know, any other kind of, uh, you know, direct effects on the heart or, uh, you know, on the liver. Uh, Again, it's mostly the psychological uh, effects that I think are of concern in the clinic. So what you're saying, and and this has been verified by other scientists like yourself that I have interviewed, is that LSD appears to have the least unwanted complications in fact, perhaps no physiological complications, and yet it is the one that carries the most stigma, and we're making the least progress towards decriminalization or legalization. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. You're exactly right. Uh, it, it, it produced, it's, it's benign physiologically. Uh, I mean, I think the only... Uh, reliable and even that is not 100% uh but but i i should say common effect is like it dilates the pupils but i understand that that's even kind of an age related uh response and that as people age even pupil dilation becomes uh less less predictable but yeah and then you take a, a, a compound such as DMT which is made within our bodies and is found, you know, in hundreds of plants and, and even animals around the world. Uh, its its effects, when taken uh, by intention in the form of, you know, vaporizing DMT or even an ayahuasca, are fairly short lived. Uh, in the in in the form of an ayahuasca, the experience might be three to perhaps five hours, uh, but really no physiological uh, effects to speak of. It's all psychological. I'm talking about from the DMT itself. Uh, Now, again, keep in mind that ayahuasca, one of the components, necessary components that makes it orally active, in fact, are MAO inhibitors, uh, which they contain. So just a note of caution there. But but pure DMT, if it's vaporized, uh, is pretty much uh, done within, you know, 30 to 45 minutes at the most. Yes, I, I've I've had DMT and it's it's never even lasted that long. It's been more like a fifteen or twenty minute experience. In fact, it happens so quickly that I don't really uh, see the potential of it for psychotherapy because it's it's a rocket ship uh, back and forth. And 
I've personally never been able to grab a hold of any information that I could bring back, though the joy, the voyage itself was pleasurable. Uh, it was more like a, you know, a great ride than a, uh, any kind of introspective or personal enhancement. But I may be missing out on just one subject because I know that it's, it's gained favor in, in some uh, areas of the subculture. Please. Yeah, it's gonna, and not only that, but also there are some uh, studies that, well, uh, uh, Dr. D'Souza at Yale University has conducted uh, some studies with DMT in the last uh, couple of years, as a, a which is potentially uh, useful in treating uh, treatment-resistant depression, but that remains to be uh further explored but 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 there is some interest even in the in the uh, non if you will non-medical field i mean there's non-medical use of dmt but i'm saying in the medical field there's also a renewed interest but you raise an interesting uh thought i had i'm not sure if anybody's doing this but uh so if you're not using it in the form of ayahuasca it has to be either vaporized or administered by uh infusion or injection somehow a parenteral uh, way, so intravenously or, or IM. And I'm, I'm wondering if anybody has done any studies on like a continuous infusion uh, of DMT to kind of prolong that space where you mentioned that it's so brief, it's hard to bring anything back. And I'm wondering if you if it would be possible to prolong that for, you know, just 60 minutes or 90 minutes or something like a continuous infusion. Are you aware of any work? No, I'm, I'm not. And that would be an interesting experiment because in those journeys that I've taken, I can see I've been able to see things and I've been able to hear things. And I wish that I had a little more time to delve into them, but they were so transitory, I really couldn't grab on and, and take hold. And you know, of course, that's my interest in, in doing that inner work, as a, particularly as a clinical psychologist. You know, I want to see what's going on in there. Let's let's switch over to you, you've mentioned ayahuasca several times. Uh, talk to us about more about physiological and the physiological complications of ayahuasca for us to be aware of. Well, as I mentioned, it does contain some MAO inhibitors. Uh, these are found. Uh, it, the, the typical composition is a uh, an extract or a tea made from. Uh, two plants, uh, a vine called Banisteriopsis capi, which contains certain alkaloids that are indeed monoamine oxidase inhibitors. These are the uh, harmala alkaloids, harmine, harmalol, uh, tetrahydroharmine. Uh, there's uh, several of them. And the other component is uh, typically Psychotria viridis, uh, which contains the DMT component. So these two plants are uh, brewed together into a tea, uh, which then, you know, the water then extracts these harmala alkaloids in the DMT and that's imbibed. And it's by virtue of the harmala alkaloids that the DMT is rendered orally active. And so uh, some studies that were done by uh, Dr. Jordi Reba in Spain about, oh, I don't know, it, was in the, it might be about five, six years ago, uh, where they administered, uh, they created, they took ayahuasca, this tea, and then they uh, created a freeze-dried form of it. So they removed all the water, essentially, and were able to give fixed known doses 
uh, of the freeze-dried ayahuasca, if you like, uh, to volunteers. And they were also able to accurately measure the components, the alkaloids, the DMT. And uh, they so they gave these, I guess they encapsulated it, to these volunteers and then took uh, uh, fluid samples, blood and urine samples over time. And even though the experience itself is over within, like I say, a maximum of perhaps five hours, more like three to four hours, uh, they were able to, de to detect the harmala alkaloids, the MAO inhibitors, uh, out to 24 hours uh, after ingestion. So there's uh, one should be aware that there's still some residual monoamine oxidase inhibition with ayahuasca that persists for perhaps a day, even though the experience is over with in, in just a, a several hours. And so why is that something to know about? Well, because if they, if a person who has taken this then takes another drug or even certain foods uh, which have sympathomimetic substances in them, again, I'm using this term, substances that stimulate the sympathetic nervous system, again, they could get a greater than intended effect. There's a specific substance called tyramine, T-Y-R, a-M-I-N-E, found in fermented foods that, in fact, is a sympathomimetic substance. Normally, this is broken down in the gut, and we never achieve high enough levels. But in the presence of an MAO inhibitor, uh, such as the harmala alkaloids, it's possible that this could uh, reach high levels. It's found in certain foods, such as aged foods, uh, fermented foods, things like soy sauce, pepperoni, smoked fish, uh, pickled herring, uh, just a variety of foods. And for people who want to learn more about this, I would uh, suggest a, an internet search for uh, uh, for this. And, and there's you know a list of you know probably 30, 40 different foods that contain the substance. But uh, so that's something to be that's uh, just on the radar at least with uh, uh, use of ayahuasca. Well, let's be clear here, Nick. You're saying that the MAO molecules in the ayahuasca linger on for perhaps a whole day afterwards. And then if a person eats one of these foods that are sympathetomimetic, what might they expect happen? Yeah, it, so the, just, just for, for clarity, the MAO is it within our body. The monoamine oxidase is an enzyme. Yes. Ayahuasca contains molecules that block monoamine oxidase. So the MAO the MAO inhibitor molecules are persistent for up to a day, according to Riva's study. Uh, what, what they might uh, uh, see are, so what can happen with excess sympathetic stimulation is, in the extreme case, it's called hypertensive crisis. So this is uh, excessive sweating, elevated blood pressure, headache, tachycardia. Those are probably the four main symptoms of it. I mean, ultimately, in an extreme case, it can produce, it can result in death. But, uh, but the, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not expecting that, uh, you know, uh, this would be common among ayahuasca users, but 
I mean, I would, you know, just again, it's just a, it's just something to be aware of and to avoid uh, some pathomimetic substances. Not not just these foods that contain tyramine, but there are a number of over-the-counter some drugs, uh, pseudoephedrine uh, found, uh, or, or or phenylpropanolamine uh, found in some over-the-counter cold remedies uh, are some like Sudafed. Yes, exactly, precisely. Or so, ephedrine, a certain tea, you know, people uh, sometimes drink tea made from ephedra, which is a plant that contains ephedrine, which is a sympathomimetic. So wouldn't we say then that people should not be eating these foods or taking Sudafed or, or drinking ephedra tea prior to taking the ayahuasca as well? Yes, I would, I would, I think it would be advisable to abstain from these substances you know, uh, for, you know, I mean, in the interest of extreme caution, you know, 24 hours before, 24 hours after. Uh, I mean, I, I would suspect that if one drank like an ephedra tea, you know, 12 hours before, it'd probably be okay. It'd probably be cleared from the body by then. But I, I'm just, again, it was an abundance of caution. And, you know, it's best to probably, in a preparation for this, and I think, this is the advice that some of the practitioners offer is to, you know, perhaps fast uh, for the day before just to yes. you know, kind of get centered and clean the body out, et cetera. Yes, definitely. This is important information. I think the ayahuasca community wants to know about this. Well, I was involved uh, just, just I, I actually prepared a list of uh, medicines and foods to avoid uh, with ayahuasca for one of the churches. Uh, the Church of the Holy Light of the Queen, uh, which is an ayahuasca church uh, based in Oregon. Uh, and we created, along with one of their uh, uh, medical doctors, uh, I participated in creating a kind of a, a drugs to avoid list, uh, which man, it was probably 30 or 40 substances on there that are best avoided. Let's move on to uh, psilocybin. Okay. Talk to us about physiological effects of psilocybin. Okay. Uh, well, one of the, I, I think, most notable uh, effects, and I, I have to say that, so I've been involved in uh, several studies with psilocybin as a chemist, uh, synthesized the psilocybin that was used in these human trials. Uh, so, uh, but I can tell you that uh, in the trials that uh, we've published, there have been no serious adverse effects with psilocybin. However, uh, occasionally, and, and this is kind of paradoxical, uh, people report having sometimes getting a headache from it, either during the session or the next day. I say paradoxically because one of the indications uh, for psilocybin is treating cluster headaches and migraine headaches. I've been involved uh, in a couple of studies that looked at that, and it, it seems to have efficacy there. But in, in some subset of people, it seems to actually create a headache, which is a puzzle at this point. Uh, it's known that serotonin uh, is involved in migraines and in, uh, in cluster headache, and there's some involvement of the trigeminal nerve. And I, I not knowledgeable enough to speak about this in detail, but there are drugs that are serotonergic agents that actually look like psilocybin, uh, sumatriptan, indotriptan, 
the so-called triptan class of anti-migraine drugs that in their core structure has uh, a, what's called a tryptamine uh, molecule. They're very closely related to psilocybin. And so my hypothesis, and this is purely conjecture, would be that somehow the psilocybin or the, the psilocin, which is the active ingredient, uh, hits some of these same receptors that the tryptans do, but instead of, but they do the opposite effect of the tryptans. So instead of like the tryptans reduce the headache, that in some people, the psilocin may actually cause or exacerbate a headache. Again, it's purely a hypothesis, though. Some people, and it seems like a, a, a substantial percentage of the population, get irpy or feel like regurgitating uh, in the early stages of uh, psilocybin uh, ingestion. Uh, I know that, I mean, that's a known adverse effect, depending on how you feel about dealing with feeling like regurgitating. Yeah. Well, there's, so there's a, a sub, a subtype of the serotonin receptor is called the 5-HT3 receptor, the serotonin, 5-HT being a, uh, an acronym for serotonin, the serotonin 3 receptor, which is involved in, uh, in, in vomiting. And, uh, and so it's possible that uh, some people that the, again, psilocin is closely related in chemical structure to serotonin. It may activate these receptors in some people and predispose them to vomiting. And, you know, some of the most effective anti-vomiting drugs block this receptor. Uh, the classic is ondansetron, uh, which is used to treat uh, emesis uh, associated with chemotherapy or in fact, I think I believe people are pre-treated with that to reduce vomiting. So, you know, again, this is a hypothesis. I don't know of any actual work that's been done with that, but but your observation, I think, is is worthy of you know further study. Yeah, I've noticed that some guides are soaking their psilocybin mushrooms in lemon juice for three to five minutes and claiming that that's reducing this uh, irpy or feeling like regurgitation in the early stages. Have you heard about that method? No, I, I have not. They're, um, they're, what they're saying is they believe that the, uh, the lemon juice sort of pre-metabolizes the psilocybin and moves it towards psilocin. And so it, it uh, sort of skips that step for the body to make by making the step in the lemon juice prior to the ingestion. And uh, anyway, that's the claim. I, I don't know anything about it scientifically, but I get it through the TomTom uh, -tom system. Yeah. Well, I, I just another thing that might be just to throw out there is, you know, the intact mushroom. And I'm, I'm assuming that some of these practitioners are, are just using mushrooms because psilocybin is not a prescribable drug at present. It's only used in, uh, well, it's, it's in uh, FDA trials, but it's it's not widely available. But it, to be aware that the mushroom itself contains other alkaloids related to psilocybin, but chemically a little bit different from them. And I'm wondering whether uh, uh, some of this uh, GI response that you're speaking about might be related to one of these other uh, compounds. To, to, my, to my knowledge, uh, the, when it, using pure psilocybin, in these clinical trials, uh, I, I, 
I haven't heard of anything where people were, you know, vomiting from it, but I have to look at the, uh, at the reported responses as possible that there's some nausea and vomiting in some people. Okay. Well, Dr. Cozy, we've talked about LSD seeming to have the fewest, if any, uh, unwanted complications. We've talked about ayahuasca. We've talked about psilocybin. These are the three main psychedelics that I believe are being used. I know that people are experimenting with the frog, uh, 5-MeO-DMT, uh, a bit and, and, and with other, uh, psychedelics. But I think ayahuasca, LSD and psilocybin are the three, uh, dominant players right now. Before we end the interview, let's talk a bit about combinations of these psychedelics. For example, I know that some therapists are using MDMA with psilocybin and some therapists are using MDMA with LSD. I have not heard about people using ayahuasca in combination with anything else. Mm-hmm. But is there anything that, uh, that you could share with us about combining these that might be important for us to know about? Mm-hmm. I, I, I would just be speculating. I, I, I see. I, I, I don't really have anything to offer in that regard. Well, thanks for your honesty. I appreciate that. Maybe that's something we can talk about in the future as we gain more knowledge because I dig, I do think I, I, there is a movement on to use MDMA with psilocybin. Uh, the idea being that the, and with LSD, that the psilis, the MDMA is more of, as you say, an empathogen and opens up the heart. It, it decreases defenses. And the LSD, for example, is more cognitive. So when you put the two together, you sort of have a integration of the heart and the head. Uh, which is a book that uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote, by the way, uh, Conversations mm-hmm. Between the Heart and the Head. I'm going to uh, take a, a short break now and talk about the program. And while I'm okay. doing so, while I'm doing so, I'd like you to be thinking about anything you forgot or anything you want to add for our listeners to know about, please. Okay. Thank you. So you're welcome. And, and thank you all for being part of this program today and being part of the community that we're building of people who are wanting to advance psychedelic science, both for psychotherapeutic reasons, but let's also remember for creativity, for inventions, because the potential is there for both psychotherapy and for creativity. So thank you for being part of this community. Please go to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, All of the programs are archived and we're open source, which means you don't have to pay anything to listen to these wonderful programs by the foremost scientists in the world on both psychedelics and many other topics. I'm particularly entranced with the interview that I did with Sylvia Earle, who's the world's foremost oceanographer, and uh, Obi Kaufman, who's our world's foremost uh, naturalist, uh, by the way, his books are phenomenal. Uh, if you haven't, check out Obi Kaufman, you know, on the web. So thanks for listening. Go to the website. And then while you're there, check out my recent books, Psychedelic Medicine, Interviews with the Greatest Scientists in the Country, or at least many of them, and Psychedelic Wisdom, Stories, Wonderful Stories from Prominent People Around the Country of Their Sub Rosa Self-Experimentation with Psychedelics for 40, 50 years. Exciting stuff. 
Okay, back to Nick. Can you th- have you thought of anything you want to add for us? Well, just uh, I, I nothing that I appreciate what I add, but I would just conclude by saying that you you brought up uh, I think an important uh, topic, uh, especially in light of the renewed interest in psychedelics, that uh, people should be aware that these are not necessarily innocuous. Uh, there are some precautions that people should take. They should be used with caution, both from a psychological point of view, but also for some of them from a physiological point of view. And uh, I think that more uh, research should be done in this area and people should be, and, and the practitioners should be made aware of some of these uh, potential complications. Thank you. And thank you so much for being with us today. I, I've always enjoyed our interviews, and I look forward to many more in the future. Uh, I also look forward to seeing you in Denver in June. I think we're going to have a lot of fun together. Yeah, definitely. I'm very much looking forward to that. And I want to thank you. I'm, I, I'm honored that you invited me to, to speak with you. And your, your program really uh, explores topics that are uh, not, not explored enough, I think. And uh, you have a great way of, uh, of, of bringing out uh, you know, people's ideas through your interviewing uh, style. So thanks for inviting me. The feeling is mutual. And thank you, gentle listeners, for being with us today on this broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you that we broadcast every Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock for our latest interview, and then that you can go to the website and the for the archives and listen to all the interviews. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hi, Eva Cheska here again. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and we encourage you to share it with others. All of our programs are archived and are open source, which means that you can listen to them anytime, anywhere, anyplace through our website, free of charge. We also invite you to check out my dad's books, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca, Psychedelic Wisdom, The Astonishing Rewards of Psychedelic Substances, and Integral Psychedelic Therapy, The Non-Ordinary Art of Psycho-Spiritual Healing, co-edited. Stay tuned for a new episode of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics every week. And if you want advance notice of our upcoming guests, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Until next time, this is Evacheska DeAngelis wishing you good health. Ah!